These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Hammurabi is dead, but his empire lives on. And for the next 150 years, much of the administration and daily life of the empire will continue in more or less the same mold as it was stamped into by the year 1750. We know of at least three sons of Hammurabi, two of whom are documented in the bureaucratic archives as high-level administrators in their father's regime. The third, Samsu Ilana, is invisible in the record before his ascension to the throne, probably because he spent all his time at the court of Babylon alongside his father, learning the business of kingship. Probably a year prior to the great king's death, Samsu Ilana ascended as co-regent, and in 1750, he took the throne in as smooth a transition of power as could be hoped for. So smooth was the changeover that instead of the traditional listing of the year as the name, the year Samsu Ilana became king, many documents also date 1750 as the year that dirt was heaped up for the city wall of Sippar, a construction project that had been begun by his father and just happened to complete in that same year. Samsu Ilana did mark his coronation with an empire-wide clearance of debts and a possible release of some debt slaves, much as his father had done, and overall the administration seems to have chugged along quite nicely. He built canals and made offerings to the gods, while the people of his empire carried on in their daily lives. I should warn those of you who only just joined the show during the series on Hammurabi that the period from 1800 to 1750 is unusually well documented into ancient history, and as we enter into the later Old Babylonian period, details quickly grow scarce and there are many uncertainties, much like the earlier parts of the show for those who have listened to those. And so, it is a bit of interpretation to say that even though it appears on the surface that there is a flourishing golden age, there is also a certain amount of discontent simmering just underneath the surface. The exact causes are unclear, but we can pretty reliably guess that on one hand, the many leaders of the conquered cities are itching for their chance to break free now that the great conqueror Hammurabi is dead. But with no clear opportunity, they can do nothing but conspire and agitate within their cities. Additionally, in southern Mesopotamia, the land of ancient Sumer, which has been in slow decline for decades if not centuries, is finally dying. The salt is claiming fields faster than ever before, and the desalinization practices, if the Sumerians ever truly understood them in quite those terms, are increasingly ineffective. The cradle of civilization, the great Eden that began our whole story, is becoming a cracked and parched desert, and there may have been a series of poor years around 1745 to turn this chronic problem into an acute one. In 1742, Samsu Ilana issued another debt cancellation to shore up his popular support, and had circumstances turned out differently, it might have been enough to keep the empire together for a while longer. But as it happens, 1742 was also the year that aliens came from the sky and blew up a city. Not literal aliens, mind you, but they may as well have been. 
Riding in from the Zagros Mountains with chariots faster than any donkey-driven vehicle familiar to Mesopotamia up until now, an obscure new tribe of nomads penetrated across the great stepland between the two rivers, raiding, pillaging, and plundering unstoppably. These people are the Kassites, or at least one branch of the larger tribal group. And aside from being ferocious warriors, they charge into battle alongside beasts that no Babylonian had ever seen before. Faster and stronger than the donkey breeds that had previously hauled the war machines of Mesopotamia, these new creatures dominated a battlefield completely unprepared for the speed and endurance they could bring to bear. This was the first time a horse had ever been used in combat in Mesopotamia, and it would remain a staple of battle for the next 3,500 years. Of course, the Kassites didn't invent horses, nor were they the original domesticators of the animal. The actual introduction of horses into Mesopotamia is a very difficult thing to pin down, with some believing that there was a smaller proto-horse present in Mesopotamia a good 50 years earlier, though not a breed that was much superior over a donkey. The sole account for the Kassite invasion of 1742 makes no mention of proper horses, but then again it provides us no details at all, except that they were met in battle around the town of Kikala, distressingly close to the North Babylonian city of Kish. However, the fact that they were able to penetrate so deeply and cause such a panic suggests to me that they weren't just strong mountain fighters. Mesopotamia had seen those before, but that they may have had a completely unprecedented edge. The Kassites were not cavalry or horse archers. Those are still a long way away. But for supply carts to be pulled by horses and for a small contingent of men on chariots to speed around the battlefield faster than anyone else could go would be a powerful advantage in battle. The very word horse in the cuneiform languages would enter the language at this point as a loan word left behind by the invaders. This particular attack went no deeper than Kakala, even though that was pretty deep into the greater empire, because finally Samsu-Ilana was able to respond with a stiff troop deployment to meet them in battle. No details of the battle are known, and it isn't clear just who won the Battle of Kakala. Certainly, Samsu-Ilana loudly proclaimed a victory and killed some Kassite troops, but on the other hand, this was how most nomads operated. They attacked and plundered until they met solid resistance and then pulled back. And there is speculation that Babylon's troops may have performed poorly in the battle. Whatever the case, the tribe of the Kassites had made their impact on Babylonia, and now everyone knew that there was a new and terrifying threat just over the horizon. And for those who had been waiting for an opportunity to challenge Hammurabi's successor, this was the chance they had been waiting for. By one count, 27 kings rose up all at once following the disaster at Kakala, led in a very loose sense by a man calling himself Rimsin of Larsa. Now, some older works will insist that this was the very same Rimsin that Hammurabi defeated 20 years earlier, whose death is never actually attested in history. However, Newer works have come to understand that 
Rimsen was definitely around 80 years old during the Siege of Larsa, and so this rebel would have had to either have been over 100 years old or, more plausibly, a pretender, who we usually call Rimsen II. Whether or not he had some relation to the old ruling dynasty, he clearly had pretensions of restoring the old kingdom of Larsa in South Sumer, and brought along with him most of the south. The north, too, declared their own independence, and it seems that Yamhad in the west and the Hurrian tribes to the far north encroached a fair bit in this chaos, eating up targets of opportunity. Rimsin's coalition fractured almost as soon as it had formed, with Uruk setting up a rival coalition under another warlord, Rim Anum. Nothing at all is known about the two rebel kings personally, but they were likely both local power players in their own cities, who'd been conspiring with outlying cities for some time now. Much of the north seems to have fractured out of Babylonian control as well, though in a much less organized fashion. Though all were arrayed against Babylon, they weren't all on the same side either. The Kassites, for one, get a mention in Rimsin II's archives as the evil Kassites from the foreign lands who cannot be repelled to the mountains, indicating that he too had problems with this invasion. But for the most part, the rebels had a good year or so to fortify and prepare, since though he was surely receiving constant reports of more cities abandoning Babylon, Samsu-Ilana had his hands completely full with the Kassites in 1742. The coalition under Rimsin decided to use their former imperial master's distraction to build up his power base, which already stretched along most of the Tigris and down into the southern Euphrates, and attacked Rim Anum in Uruk, a serious error. His assault foundered upon the high walls of Uruk and weakened both insurrectionist factions. Fascinatingly, we have a few scattered administrative documents from a prison within Rimanum's Uruk, which includes both political prisoners, assumed to have been rival factions within Uruk, and defeated enemies from this attack, one king of Kazalu, and two separate men who both claim to be king of Eshnunna, giving us a sense of how chaotic the situation really was. The following year, Samsu Ilana had dealt with the Kassites. They weren't gone, they'll be showing up in a big way soon enough in our story, but for the time being, that war had calmed down, and he could turn his attention southwards. The two weakened foes were no small obstacles, but the military might of Babylon was fairly well honed by this time. It might look like Babylon has just seen 18 years of peace, and that's more or less the case, but we know from other time periods that the business of small raids in and out of nomad territory never really ceases, keeping an active military in shape even during peacetime. The professional Babylonian military sweeps aside the two competing rebel groups within the year, in what seems to have been an absolutely devastating campaign. Samsu Ilana recalls the heroic come-from-behind victory of Naram-Sin of the Akkadian Empire and writes an inscription following the same style as those recovered from the ancient king, announcing that he defeated with weapons eight times within one single year the entirety of Sumer and Akkad as they had become hostile to him. He turned cities into heaps of rubble, he tore out the foundations of the enemies, and caused the entire country to dwell under his command. 
This particular inscription praises the sun god Shamash, since it's in the city of Sippar, while in Kish he thanks Zababa and Ishtar for giving him the command to slay the rebels and make his weapon ready. Here, he says that the whole campaign may have taken less than half the year. We've been following the slow death of Sumer for a number of episodes now, but this is finally what breaks the region, pretty much for the rest of history. The fields are salt desert, and adding canals is showing diminishing returns for greater amounts of labor. The devastation of massive rebellion in the midst of ecological crisis is simply not something that the region will ever recover from. Water usage in the north may have been diverting water needed for southern fields. And to top it all off, Samsu Ilana initiates a resettlement program out of the major cities of the south into the north. It isn't clear how much of this is voluntary resettlement because of the poor conditions and how much of it is forced as a reaction to the Great Rebellions, but a large portion of the cities of Lagash and Uruk are moved to Kish, Larsa and Nippur to Babylon, Isin to Sippar, and many other cities to other northern hosts. Particularly telling is that even though it's said to be large portions of each city moving into northern receiving cities, we hear tell of particular quarters of the city set aside for new arrivals, indicating that the abandoned cities may have had only a fraction of the size of the ones in Babylonia at this point. Not everyone moved north, but nearly every Sumerian city was greatly reduced in these years. Some temples were kept open, but in most cases the gods themselves were evacuated north along with their populations in very solemn ceremonies. Those people who didn't move north fled to the villages or into nomadism, where a subsistence lifestyle may have been possible, though it seems times were hard for the rural communities as well, and a good portion of the population may have simply died off. This left the ruins of ancient and mighty Sumer under essentially no one's control, though for a time Samsu Ilana would claim nominal dominion over the south. There is one more place that people from Sumer fled to. However, while this last is an incredibly momentous historical shift, it's also deeply obscure and very poorly understood. You see, the coastline has shifted outwards over the last few hundred years. The city of Eridu was once marshland on the Euphrates River with a port directly on the Persian Gulf. Today, the ruins of Eridu stand in arid desert, 100 miles from the shore, and the marshlands migrated along with the coastline. As the coastline traveled, so too did many of the people, and with the abandonment of Sumer, many more people went south to join these marsh folk. Not much is known about them. They did not build cities like the Sumerians had, and much of their material culture has been lost in the hostile conditions of the marshes. But it seems likely that they did quite a lot of fishing to supplement their agriculture and herding activities, giving them a level of food stability no longer present in Sumer. But for the most part, very basic questions of who these people were and how many of them there were appear at present to be essentially unanswerable. Which is a shame, because the people of what will come to be called Sealand are going to be a constant player in history for the next few hundred years. But the South is quiet now. 
A decade passes, in which people flow out of Sumer. At the same time, Samsu Ilana undertakes massive wall-building projects in Sippar, Isan, and Mashkan Shapir, implicitly establishing a new southern boundary for the Babylonian heartland, south of which there is nothing of sufficient economic value to be worth holding on to. It isn't clear if there was more fighting in the South, certainly none is written about directly, but either residual rebellion or the nebulous rise of the Sealand dynasty may have involved a bit of conflict during this period. With the South secure and his armies recovered from the Kassite and Southern Wars, Samsu Ilana directs his attention to the kingdoms of the North, who have been thumbing their nose at him for a decade now. The revitalized Eshnuna, most particularly, had sent a contingent of troops to the Great Southern Rebellion, and though these men were defeated, the land of Eshnuna on the Diala Fork of the Tigris was far enough away from Sumer that it wasn't taken during the conquest. We know nothing at all about what was going on in the north, aside from a general impression of being fractured and maybe unstable, and it took only one campaign season to bring the region back under control. By 1727, Fort Samsu Ilana had been constructed at a commanding location along the tributary and was the home base for raids, which exerted control into the Zagros mountain tribes and possibly pushed further into the frontier of Elam itself. Samsu Ilana, however, was not part of these later expeditions into the mountains. Instead, he marched a little bit north to reunify the Upper Tigris, then marched across the Steplands to the land that was once the Kingdom of Mari. Turka and Tuttle, two northern cities that had received a great deal of Mari's population when that city was annihilated, had also been part of the independence movement, and seeing Babylon occupied on other fronts, had begun to move down the Euphrates for the town of Haradam, which it held for about a year before Samsu Ilana's hammer came down on them. This Kingdom of Hana, denoting the name of the region north of where Mari once stood, was pushed out of their capital of Turka all the way to the much more northern city of Tuttle. The rebel state took a serious loss and another Babylonian fort was constructed some 20 miles north of Turka to protect that frontier, but the state wasn't annihilated completely. This is the furthest both north and west that Samsu Ilana would take the empire. Though if you look at these border cities on a map, Babylon's empire looks only a bit smaller than it did at the end of Hammurabi's conquest, and with those portions still under imperial control held much more tightly than they'd been right after their conquest. The year, however, is 1723, and it's taken Hammurabi's son some 20 years to recover what Hammurabi himself had conquered in only four. Did Samsu Ilana lack the bold genius of his father, or was the situation simply more difficult than it had been in the 1760s? There's no real way to know, and a little bit of both seems to be a fairly popular answer. While we're in the northeast, just inside the border of modern-day Syria, it's worth pausing to ask what's happened to the great western power of Yamhad. Only a few decades ago, they were strong enough to be deeply involved in the great power politics and would never have allowed either the Great Rebellion or the later defeat of the Kingdom of Hana to go on unmolested. Well, it seems they were having their own troubles, and the lack of King Yarimlim's genius was clearly affecting the country. 
the much less famous Hammurabi, Hammurabi of Aleppo, had died the same year that Hammurabi of Babylon had, 1750, and left behind two sons, Abba El and Yarimlim II. As part of his will, the inheriting son Abba El had been instructed that his younger brother should be given a fief to rule in perpetuity, and so he had handed his brother the city and district of Iridu. And for a time, the empire remained strong and peaceful until the governor of Iridu, a subordinate of Yarimlim II, rose up in rebellion for unclear reasons. Abba El did not publicly hold his brother responsible for the rebellion, and after burning the city to the ground and slaughtering all its inhabitants, he obeyed his father's dying wish and gave his younger brother a new fief, the city of Alalak, near the Mediterranean coast. However, there must have been a good deal of suspicion floating around, or perhaps a great deal of now-lost inner palace politics, because the younger Yarimlim was given near-total independence, though on the condition that the two countries be allies for all time and never betray each other. As far as we know, this situation never fell into open warfare, but for the next 50 years or so, the king of Aleppo and the king of Alalak seem to have done very little except stare warily at each other, and the political and economic significance of the two Syrian kingdoms appears to wane for a time. Back in Babylonia, Samsu Ilana has had only a year to rest from his grand tour of Mesopotamia before things are again stirring in the south. The course of the rising Selan dynasty is deeply unclear, and an area of active research today, but one fairly recent proposal is that there existed a country deep in the southern marches since perhaps the time of the Great Revolt, which has been slowly gaining power until now. In 1721, possibly in response to the slow accumulation of power by the group which will become the Selan dynasty, a battle is fought, possibly near the Persian Gulf, or maybe near a smaller lake further inland. The location could be literally anywhere in southern Mesopotamia. We don't know who won that battle, but it appears to have made the people of Sealand confident, and by the end of the year, a man named Ila Ma'ilu proclaimed himself king over the city of Nippur, which he seems to have captured with relatively little fighting, and probably ruled over most of Old Sumer and the land to the south. Nippur had been fortified, but either Ilamailu's troops completely overwhelmed the defenders, or out of respect for the ancient religious center, the battle was fought somewhere nearby. Nippur is the only city in Sumer that we can definitely say was controlled by the Selan dynasty in the early years, but this is largely because most of the old cities were abandoned at this point, and urbanism was largely given up for a period. Nippur was not the capital of this kingdom, that still hasn't been located, not even a name, and while the temples were maintained to a certain extent, the city itself only barely limped along. I really can't overemphasize how completely unknown the Selan dynasty is. They had writing, and some number of receipts and business documents have been recovered, but on one hand they seem to have mostly lived in marshes, where clay structures and documents would decay much more rapidly than in the deserts of the north, and on the other hand they were likely extremely poor. 
no cities grew up under the Sealand regime, and the ones that existed were allowed to fall into ruins. The South could no longer support population concentrations, but the marshland overall could likely support a fairly substantial population spread out over a wide area at low density, engaged in fishing and subsistence agriculture. They appear to have had all the same technical knowledge of their northern neighbors and Sumerian ancestors. They just didn't have the resources to leave behind inscriptions and constructions that would let us know how they lived. And so, this is the last firm thing that can be said about the Sealand dynasty during the reign of Samsu-Ilana. We will be seeing them again in the future, and there are hints of occasional skirmishes and raids on the border, but for the most part, they are silent participants in history. But the collapse of Sumer did provide one lasting benefit to history. It's thanks to these cities' abandonment that many Sumerian literary works survive to this day. Houses, temples, and Oedipus schools were simply abandoned, and many of the clay tablets were simply left sitting there to gather dust until archaeologists came by to recover them, and many of our best versions of the Epic of Gilgamesh and other important writings come from this period. Samsu-Ilana would rule for a few more years, dying of natural causes in 1712 after 38 years on the throne. With his reign, we see Mesopotamia settling into the patterns it would follow for the next century. Externally, Babylon's empire is reduced from the peak of Hammurabi's conquest, with parts of both the north and the south cut off. Along the Euphrates, Babylon's control would settle impressively far north for a time, up past the ruined city of Mari. On the Tigris, the Diyala and rebellious Eshnunna had finally been exhausted and broken to the imperial yoke, but north of that, Hammurabi's successors will no longer be able to exercise effective control, and the city of Asher is in the process of freeing itself from foreign influence, though that is a tale for another episode. In the south, the border with Sealand would, as near as we can tell, more or less stabilize, though with ongoing conflict throughout the period. It can seem like a bleak picture and a story of decline, but the bright spot in all of this is that the Babylonian heartland, the capital itself and the cities that surround it, are economically vibrant throughout most of this period. For the scholars and craftsmen in Babylon itself, this will be an extended period of peace and prosperity, allowing them to make some remarkable cultural achievements and a few interesting scientific ones. The abandonment of Sumer is certainly a great loss, but the fact that so many scribes and priests were relocated to northern cities means that the cults continue much like normal, though the change in the cultural center of gravity has had some profound effects. Babylon replaces the dying Nippur as the spiritual center of the world, with the theological consequence that Marduk starts to be elevated over all the other gods within Babylonian territory. Perhaps more importantly, the Sumerian language, long taught in the Oedipus schools and for centuries preserved as a language of literature and worship, is almost completely replaced in this period by Akkadian as the written language for most prestigious writings. But for the most part, daily life in Babylonia will proceed under the patterns established by the great Hammurabi. Samsu-Ilana's administration proceeds much as the previous one had, but this shouldn't be taken as a lack of imagination on the king's part. 
Even if Samsu Ilana lacked his father's genius, he was still clearly intelligent and capable, and seems to have quite generally shared his father's outlook in most aspects of governance. Most interestingly, he seems to have continued the legalist project begun by his father, acting as judge and issuing a number of jurisprudential pronouncements that were so well written they were preserved in scribal schools as examples of excellent jurisprudential form. One copy which survives gives us a window into how he and his father had engaged in lawmaking on a day-to-day -day basis. The letter begins by naming the relevant parties to two disputes. He then goes on to recount the facts of the two cases as he sees them, in which a nadatum, that's a nun or a priestess, of Shamash in the town of Sippar was being hassled by various people to get her to pay her father's various obligations. Following this, Samsu Ilana announces the resolution of the disputes in a form clearly meant as both a legal decision in this case, but also spelling out general principles to serve as precedent for future disputes. It reads, Royal Directive a natatum of Shamash, whose father and brothers gave her food and supplies, thus establishing her as a dependent of her father's house, and wrote a tablet to her affirming that she received the food and supplies, and who lives in the cloister, is not liable for the debts and the ilkum duties of the house of her father and brothers. Her father and brothers will perform the ilkum duties and pay their debts. As to the creditor who takes hold of a nadatum of Shamash for the debts or ilkum duties of the house of her father and brothers, such a man is an enemy of Shamash. Lawyers today could take a cue from the clarity of thought and style that Samsu Ilana illustrates here. This particular case was not one found in Hammurabi's law code, and likely represents a much larger body of legislation that went far beyond the Great Black Stela to manage any sort of dispute that could arise between the people of Babylon. More importantly, the continuation of the project of law, with Samsu Ilana's personal involvement in the matter as well as the Ilkum system and general pace of administrative life, show that within the capital, Samsu Ilana was very much a continuation of his father. All in all, probably a pretty good thing for the people enjoying justice, order, and prosperity under the rule of a fair and intelligent king blessed by contented gods. This peace and prosperity is the Babylonian Golden Age, and one of the biggest accomplishments of the era is a cultural flourishing, represented at least in part by a tremendous increase in the number of surviving literary works from this period, particularly as works in the increasingly obscure Sumerian are translated into Akkadian. We've actually read many of these already, but there are two tales in particular from about this period that are worth diving into here. The philosophical work called The Poem of the Righteous Sufferer and the theologically fascinating and deeply influential Theogony of Dunu, which will be the focus of next week's episode. So join us next time as we have occasion to remember that Mesopotamian religion is still far from a unified faith as we see another creation story to rival the Enuma Elish, as well as a look into who the people writing these stories actually were and what Mesopotamian education looked like. Thank you for listening.